538 BC. The Persian king Cyrus the Great, he fought and he defeated the armies of Babylon. Soon thereafter, Cyrus decreed that all people who were held in that part of the world, all people who were held in Babylon as captives, they could return to wherever they had come from. So can you imagine what that was like for the people of Israel, the people of God who had been held in captivity? God had answered their prayers, and they could return. They had been freed by God. And imagine the hope that would have been in their hearts. They were going back to Jerusalem. You know, surely God was going to do great things. Surely now God was going to restore the fortunes of Israel. Soon, things changed. When they returned, the situation in Israel was not as rosy as they had kind of hoped it would be. The amount of the people of God was far fewer than it had been. They returned to Jerusalem. They saw Jerusalem, and it was in tatters. You know, it was an absolute ruin of a place. And there was opposition. There was opposition from all the peoples around them. And so just a few years after they had returned, with all that hope in their hearts... The building work that had begun on the temple of God when they returned, that building work that had begun with such vigor and enthusiasm, it slowed and then it stopped. Where was God? Where was God? These these people were absolutely disillusioned on their return. Now, is that not like us? Does that situation not kind of feel rather familiar to you and and, and to me? You know, you and I can look back on on times, I think, of, of real joy and real excitement and real expectancy in our Christian walk. You know, maybe we were moving into a new city. You know, we were moving into a new church, a new congregation. Maybe we'd come to faith and we didn't know what God was going to do, but we knew that God was going to do something amazing, right? Wasn't he? He was going to do something amazing through us. Now look at us. Where is the joy? (laughs) And where is our hope and expectancy? The Christian life has been tough for us and there hasn't been the revival that we kind of expected, if we're honest, and we hope for. Like, as far as I know, tonight, the end of the service, there is not a queue of people waiting to be baptized tonight. Is there? Maybe there is. We're asking the same question. Where is God? Where is God? Is he going to bless us? When is he going to bless us? And if he is going to bless us, How? Well, into that situation strides confidently the prophet Zechariah. And he comes, okay? He comes bearing here this message of encouragement. And the answer that he gives to that question that I've just asked is yes, yes, a thousand times yes. That God can, God can bless us. That if the people of God will only repent 
if unbelievers, if Christians, if this congregation here repent, we can experience dramatic spiritual change. So this evening, what I want us to do is just to unpick and unpack this prologue to the book of Zechariah and to consider what it means for us to repent before our God. So if you haven't done so already, please turn with me. Please have the book of Zechariah open in front of you. Zechariah chapter 1. Okay, we'll notice a few things here tonight about these, these verses we've read. A few things. First of all, I want you to to consider this with me. Note the need for repentance. Okay, that's the first thing. We've got to get our heads around. The need there is for us to repent. Just, just have a look at verse 1. Like, we, we learn a couple of things, quite important things going forward about Zechariah uh, in verse 1. We learn, first of all, that he's a priest. And you see what we're told? We're told that he's the son of Berechiah and he's the son of... So these guys are priests. I mean, he's from a priestly line, so he's a priest. We've got that. Same thing, though. We also learn that he was a prophet. That this book that we are embarking on, all 14 chapters of Zechariah, that this is a prophecy. That this is a word that has come to, that's come from God, and it's coming through Zechariah. And I want you to think about it really as being a sort of prophetic symphony. Okay, a symphony, prophetic symphony in a couple of acts, a couple of parts. You have got chapters 1 to 8. Contains visions, pictures from God. And then you've got the second part of this book from chapters 9 to 14. It's different, very different genre, that second part. More revelatory oracles. So you've got it. It's this big prophetic symphony. Okay. What I want you to notice just now is that this prophetic symphony does not begin with, you know, the piano or, or something like the first violins or something like that. No. This prophetic symphony, it begins with the timpanies. It begins with this big dramatic symbol crash of verse 2. Look at that with me. See how this book begins? The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Do you hear the crash of the symbols? The Lord was very angry. Now, friends, why? Like, why was God angry with these people's forefathers? Well, I think we're given a hint in verse 4, if you just let your, your eye go down the page. It says that their forefathers had not listened or paid attention to God. That really kind of sums up the, the, the history of the people of Israel, though, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Like the Old Testament is a wash of, uh, of accounts of the people of, of God and the people of Israel rejecting God. Isn't that the case? Wouldn't you say that? That, that God has shown immense grace. Now, all the nations of the world, all the people groups, all the tribes, what has God done? God has chosen for himself one people group. And he's shown them. What love? I mean, he's shown incredible grace. And what have they done? Every time they reject him and they go and intermingle and they they go and intermarry and they pursue wickedness and they pursue evil. And what do we learn here? We learn here that that embracing of evil, it makes God 
angry. And we hate that, don't we? Like we, we, we hate that. Even here in the church, we hate that. Like any talk, oh, when a minister says that God is angry with people, it doesn't it? Doesn't it make us sick? My wife, uh, this past week, was reading an interview with Samantha Cameron, the wife of our, our, our present prime minister. And uh, coincidentally, in the run-up to a, a, a general election, Samantha Cameron was, was speaking about her faith. Okay, and she was asked if she was a Christian, and she said that yeah, she, she had faith. But that it, that it wasn't faith, it seems, in the God of the Bible. She described herself as a, a New Testament Christian. New Testament Christian. Now, you see what she meant by that. I'm sure you see the, the inference is that, that, that the God of the New Testament is different from the God of the Old Testament. That the, I don't know, the God of the New Testament, maybe, maybe fluffy and nice and loving and, and, you know, whatever will be, will be the God of the Old Testament. I'm not having any of that, you know, and that's a God of wrath, isn't it? I mean, that's a, a God of anger. Well, the problem with that, of course, is that Scripture makes it very clear the constancy of God's character. That if God was angry at anything in the Old Testament and, and God full of wrath, that, that is always what, what, what He is like. And actually, I think, instead of us tonight in here playing down or disregarding God's anger, I think because of what we've got here, we actually have to emphasize, we have to promote that God is a God of anger. I'll tell you why. See, in that verse you've got in front of you, in verse 2, there is a Hebrew idiom that is used, and it's fascinating, it's incredibly enlightening. Now, are you using the church Bible? If so, just look at uh, the NIV and look at verse 2. Now, how is it rendered in the NIV? It says here that the Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Is that what you've got in front of you? The Lord is very angry with your forefathers. Now, get this. See, in the original language, slightly different. That verse begins and ends with the same word. Any prizes for guessing what, what, what what that word is. Let me read it to you. The original, it says this. Angry was the Lord your God with your forefathers. Angry. Do you see the point? Our God is not just a a, a God who gets slightly ticked off or, or slightly annoyed. Ours is a God who does get angry and he does get furious. Now, now, what does this, this mean for us? How does that idea of an angry God help us tonight? Well, if our church here, London City Presbyterian Church, if it is going to experience any sort of renewal, then what we're seeing is that we must recapture a sense of the holiness of our God. The holiness of our God. We must refocus on the fact that our God is so pure and so righteous and he is so perfect that he cannot see wickedness and just ignore it. He cannot see evil and just pretend that he, it doesn't exist. Our God is so righteous that when he sees, sees wickedness, that he gets 
angry that this is his whole holy being acting in revulsion of what is a rejection of good. Our God is a holy, holy God. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, you said the Zecha arrives with a, with a messages of encouragement. And, you know, is this encouraging? Oh, but do you see that it is? This is encouraging. Because what does he say? He says, God was angry with your forefathers. But you, you have an opportunity for that to change if you will only repent. If you will only turn from your sin, engage in a life of repentance, that anger that covered your forefathers, it will not cover you. And I know, I accept that this is not a popular thing to talk about. Not in society. Not even in the church. I wonder though, tonight, do you see how important this is? Because God can either be good and angry at sin, or he is unjust and tolerates wickedness. I honestly believe, friends, that we should rejoice that this book, that this prophecy, it begins with a revelation of the righteous anger of our God. So there's a need for repentance. God is angry at sin. Secondly, let's consider the character of repentance, the character or the nature of it. I mean, what, what, what does repentance mean? What, what does it involve? I said to you that, uh, as far as I know, there isn't a queue of people waiting to be baptized after this evening's service. Okay. Having said that, I do believe that this is quite an exciting time for London City Presbyterian Church. Like more than at any stage over the last couple of years, we are seeing people come in who are interested in Christianity. We're seeing people come in who are interested in the gospel. You know, the, the Holy Spirit is at work. This is, this is marvelous, isn't it? And that's an exciting thing. But as we see that, happen, I I think we're also seeing a common, very common misunderstanding about salvation. People are coming in interested in Christianity. They are interested in the gospel, but they are viewing and thinking about salvation in terms of a chain of lifestyle. You see what I mean? Are you following me? They're coming in and they're saying, I'm interested to know about Jesus Christ. I'm interested in this idea of Christianity. Do you know what? I think I buy into that. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm stop going to go out and I'm, I'm, I'm going to live like you guys live. People are interested in Christianity and they say, oh, well, this, this sounds okay. I tell you what, I see the futility of my life. I'm going to live like, like Christians live. Now, let me be abundantly clear. Repentance does involve a turning away from wickedness. Verse 4 says, turn from your evil ways. Here's my point. Primarily, repentance is about a relationship. We are not just turning from something. Repentance involves turning to someone. 
Do me the favor of looking to verse 3. Look at what God is saying to these people. What does he say? Verse 3, he says, return to what? Return to me. Return to the Lord. Do you see it? This isn't a call. You see, repentance, this isn't a call. You know, return to religiosity, will you please? This is not return to piety. It's not return to Sabbath observance. It's not even return to reading the right sort of books. It's return to me. It's return to the Lord. Do you see that in repentance, in salvation, God demands a personal relationship. Return to to me. Do you see that salvation isn't about a turning over of a new leaf? It is about a turning to a Savior. And I think that's something of infinite importance if you are in here tonight and you are not a Christian. Infinite importance to you. I want to do something different though. I want to speak to you if you're a Christian. See, I've got a fear. My fear is if you're a Christian in here tonight, you're fighting tiredness. You're falling asleep. You know, the minister's speaking about an angry God who's angry at sin. The minister's speaking about the need for repentance. And you're a Christian. You've done this. You know, the Holy Spirit saved you. You get this. This isn't applicable to you. Who is Zechariah speaking to? Zechariah is speaking to the people of God. Zechariah is speaking to you. Because of that, I've got a question for you. If someone who is interested, these people who have come in and interested in the gospel, if they would say to you, what, what's the Christian life like? What characterizes the Christian life? What would you say? Can I give you a suggestion? The Christian life must be a life of change. That's what we are to be about. The Christian life is a life of change. The Christian life is to be a life of constant change, of daily change, that God, if you're a Christian in here, God has called you to continually, on a daily basis, be repenting and changing. Do you see that? We are supposed to, every single day, be examining our hearts, looking for the areas of weakness and wickedness, battling that, seeking to put that to death. Do you see that this idea of repentance, it isn't just about that initial calling out to Jesus Christ and turning from wickedness. This is something that, that our whole lives as Christians is supposed to be about. This is being a Christian. Repenting every single day. Is that you? I wonder. As a Christian in here, I mean, are you spending your time in prayer repenting, identifying your areas of weakness, seeking in the power of God to change it. You doing this? But let me return to the unbeliever. Friend, are you in here tonight because you are interested in the gospel? Are you in here tonight because you are interested in Christianity? Well, hear this. Scripture does not just tell us that God is angry at your sin. Scripture teaches us that God is angry at you. 
that as the sin of these people's forefathers, that as it covered them personally, so the sin of your first forefather, Adam, it covers you tonight. And so I reiterate to you that the way out of the wrath of God at sin is not by you being a better person. And it isn't by you sort of getting involved in the congregation here. It really, it really isn't. It is not about you cleaning your life up. That will never, ever change the nature that you have received. It is about a turning from your wickedness and a turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you've got an opportunity tonight to do that. Will you? Turn to Jesus and ask him for forgiveness from your sin. The need for repentance. The character of repentance. I want to close with a third thing. Notice with me here the promise of repentance. The promise. I want us to think about what it is that God assures these people off if they repent. So I'll ask you again to look at verse 3 with me, please. What does God promise to do? Do you see it? Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty. And what will he do? I will return to you. You see what that is? If these people listen to this prophecy, if they repent, God is promising something. He is promising that he will come and be amongst them. That genuine repentance, that it always leads to genuine acceptance by God, that God would come and dwell among them. And I want you to see how exciting that is for our congregation. Do you see how exciting God's promise is there? Like, you see that there's a corporate element to what's going on here, do you? Like this isn't one guy in front of Zechariah that's been asked to repent. This is, this is the people. This is the congregation. You know, this is the community of faith that are being called to repent. Do you see that there is a word in that for, for us as a group of Christians? That if we repent, that renewal will come. That tonight, if, if we hear from God the importance of change and the importance of repentance, if we as a congregation of God's people, if we develop a culture of repentance in this church, that renewal will come. That God will come amongst us. As he promises here, he may come amongst us. You ready? In power that there may well be one day a queue of people waiting to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Do you see that it's exciting if we, if we repent? But here's how we'll close. I want to close with a question that you might have about this, especially if you are an unbeliever tonight. Because I think Given what we've said, you might ask, how is this possible? Like, how is it possible that a holy God, 
could ever accept sinful people. Like, I've said that God is constant in his character. Like, how could a, a God who's just, even if people repent, man, how could a God who is just ever accept people who are sinful and maintain and be consistent with his justice? Do you see the problem here? That's the problem, isn't it? How does it work? Wait a minute. What did we see at the beginning of the sermon? When did this prophecy take place? You remember what had happened? This prophecy came when the work on the temple had stalled. You've got to understand this prophecy in light of that fact. The fact that the temple goes hand in hand with this prophecy. Now, why do we have to understand these things together? Well, because God could only accept these people's repentance if they had been in the temple. If they had been transferring their sin somewhere else to these animals that would be then slaughtered and punished in their place. Do you see it? God could only accept repentance if these people's sin was transferred and then dealt with. And you know what I'm going to say. But I still would ask you to listen See that whole temple system of sacrifices? What was it there for? It was there to point forward to that one great once and for all sacrifice for sin. Now, what happened there? God sent his one and only son. And he sent him to earth. And what did the son do? He took upon himself not symbolically as was in the temple, but actually he took upon himself our sin. And what happened? Come on. How do we begin the sermon? What happened? The son also took upon himself that anger. That wrath that we've talked about, the real wrath of God. The son of God bore that. Now what did that mean? It meant that God was now able because he had dealt with sin to freely justify his people. It enabled a just God to accept and justify people who were wicked. If they would do what? If they would only bow and repent. Friends, if you're a Christian tonight, I'm sure you see what you need to do. We're just going to close the sermon. You need to bow before your God. And you need to ask him to help you tomorrow begin a new chapter of your life where you seek change and you seek repentance. That's what these people did here. But if you are an unbeliever tonight, if you are not saved as you came through the door, surely you see what you must do. I will pause and close in a minute and there'll be a moment of silence. You see what you have to do. You have to turn from your wickedness and you have to turn and face the one who was on that cross. You have to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive you for your sin. He can forgive you for your sin. He can. And if you do that, 
tonight and if it is genuine, that won't be just repentance. Do you know what it will be? It will be repentance unto life. Friends, let's bow together. Let's pray.